So let's talk a little bit about the history, okay? And I was brought up with this, man. When I first came to the United States uh, from Cuba, we had bazooka bubble gums. It was like two for five cents. There were big chunks of bubble gum. Of course, in Cuba, you, you couldn't chew anything, much less anything that, had, that could make a bubble, right? So right off the bat, I'm like impressed. But when I open up the bazooka bubble gum, out comes this little thing. And it was always the same cartoon. The big bully comes to the beach and takes the little skinny guy's girlfriend. Bam, you know? And then you turn it, okay? So now the skinny guy did the program, and he comes back all built and buffy. He goes, pow, and there used to be like the word pow, you know? Maybe you, you might see it here with the, with the flash, and pow, and then he takes the girl, okay? And it was the Charles Atlas Dynamic Tension Program. That's what I was brought up in. And believe it or not, I ordered it. I ordered, I think it was like five cents. You actually put a nickel in an envelope and it would come back a little um, poster, black and white with, you know, isometrics and stuff, okay? But our history, the first people to use movement as medicine was doctors. That, that's well established by the Greeks, well established. The use of medicine balls, the use of movement, the use of uh, stretching from India and, 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 um, and um, uh, your, your yoga, okay? The martial arts, okay, the martial arts. All of that was movement, Tai Chi, okay? Slow, great for blood pressure, great for strength, great for balance, everything. So we come from a, um, a background of doctors, all right? And we've been background for doctors many, 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 many years. This whole physical culture really started in Europe. That's where all the bodybuilders came, like in the 30s and 40s. Everything comes from Europe, 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 Europe. It gets here, and then, of course, we do the American thing. We market it. We uh, create products, create this, that, and the other, right? But it's not until the 1970s okay, that we became floor instructors. You were a floor instructor, real, like a, a fitness instructor. And you were just on the floor cleaning up the gym, cleaning up uh, after people. And if somebody said, hey man, you know, I want to develop my bicep, uh, how, do I, how do I do an exercise uh, for the bicep? And you would show them with a dumbbell, a, a curl, a preacher curl, a concentration curl, a hammer curl. And you would say, look, if you hold it like this, it does that. If you hold it like this, it does that. So the floor instructor kind of was the, the master of everything. You know, it's like, you know, jack of all traits and master of everything, right? The floor instructor did everything. It was, he was the janitor. He was the uh, maitre d'. He was the concierge. And he was the uh, personal trainer. Then, of course, the PT uh, career emerges, all right, in uh, the 80s. That's when ACE started actually using um, a fitness instructor or personal trainer in their language for certifications in their 80s. Of course, uh, we had the CSCS from, uh, from the NSCA, which is the Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist. So now in the 80s, the knowledge for gym-related uh, activities starts to come on board. Not only from a, from a personal training perspective, but also from a strength and conditioning perspective for the NSCA. And we got to give credit for the NSCA, the first ones to put that CSCS out there. You needed a four-year degree just to sit in to the um, certification. And then, of course, you know, you have to understand vocation versus profession. Although we call it a profession, personal training doesn't require a license. 
doesn't even require you to get certified. There is no one certification that is globally recognized as the number one. It, there's not. They all claim they are, but they're not. There's not one certification. I always get calls, especially from South America. You know, they're, they're, they're coming behind us for about 10 years. Will your certification allow me to work? They ask those questions. Will, you, will your certification guarantee me work? Will you, um, can I work in the United States with your certification? So they'll ask me the same question in different ways. And I tell them this, no certification will give you what you're looking for, which is automatic employment or uh, acceptance by everybody. You go over here, they might accept NSCA. You go over here, they might accept ACSM. You go over there, uh, they might uh, accept NASM. And you go to another place, they'll say, oh, that's great. You have certification, fantastic. That allows you to actually come in. But in order to really, really make good money, you gotta go through our certification programming. And you go, but wait a minute, I got a master's degree, and I got the NSCA, NASM, and ACSM. I got the three big ones. Okay, how am I not making 55 bucks an hour? Why are you starting me at 35? They say, because you have to go through our three levels in-house in order to get to that 55. That's possible too. So that tells you that in our industry, there is no one organization that's got the hold on it. Any employer can ask you for anything, okay? We are not licensed, we're not regulated, and I like it that way. Because look, look, look at what good work we do without regulation. And there's a whole bunch of problems that you deal with regulations, like who's going to regulate it, okay? And I've already been involved in that with the NSCA and the American uh, uh, Physical Therapy Association, and there was a huge scandal in Washington, D.C., where they tried to get the American um, uh, Physical Therapy uh, uh, Association to govern, to govern the license for personal trainers, and it was stopped, and it was stopped in court. You know, and you go, why, why would that be bad? That would be bad because personal trainers are competing against physical therapists for dollars. And that's a fact. Anybody who tells you, no, we work together. No, you don't work together. No, you don't work together. There's very little, uh, uh, very little reference and very little um, uh, referrals. They don't work together. They compete. And unless you, you accept that, you're not going to get anywhere. This is not a kumbaya world. They don't. Doctors don't refer a whole lot. Yes, we have doctors that refer to it. But as a normal practice, doctors don't refer. Physical therapists don't refer. And, and personal trainers end up doing everything. We do nutrition. We do physical therapy. We do conditioning. We do psychological revamping. Okay? We do it all without regulation. So you know what? I would say leave us alone, and that's why we have these certifications. Now, let's talk about a brief history. We get into heavy history on the personal trainer side. I think we dedicate almost an entire hour to the history of personal training, and I mean, we get in there deep. But I wanna give you a scenario so at least you know where you come from, okay? Muscle Beach, Santa Monica in the 1930s. Muscle Beach is the first Venice Beach. Okay, that was the first Muscle Beach, was Muscle Beach in Santa Monica. And that's where a bunch of bodybuilders would get out there and they would do a lot of calisthenics because the original muscle building stuff wasn't so much weight and machines, it was actually gymnastics and calisthenics, okay? Funny because everybody, all the muscle guys from Europe that were selling the dynamic tension program, all of them did weight training. But weight training couldn't ship because you have to ship weight. 
So they said, wait a minute, from a marketing standpoint, listen to this, from a marketing standpoint, we're gonna tell people that they can achieve this body with isometrics and with dynamic tension and with the bands and towels and whatnot, okay? And that's how the original programs were sold, okay? So this whole culture starts at Muscle Beach, Santa Monica. So of course, a bunch of dudes lifting, and dudes will do what dudes do. And sooner or later, they started acting uh, in maybe not so nice ways, doing things that they shouldn't be doing, maybe getting drunk, uh, maybe some, you know, uh, some dating and stuff at night, which shouldn't have been going on at the beach. And you know, guys with muscles start to drink and drink, not that they start to drink, but if they start to drink sooner or later, the girls come over and everybody's drinking before you know it's a party. Well, Santa Monica didn't like that. And they closed that beach down and then Venice Beach opened after that. When by the time Venice Beach opens, they learn, hey man, we can't act like animals because they'll close this place. Plus, by that time, bodybuilding had caught on a little bit more. Now we had the Franco Columbus. We had the um, coming in, especially in the 60s and 70s, all right? But anyways, they move over. In the 1950s, Vic Tanny. Vic Tanny is the first gym that was made for the public, okay? Prior to the 50s, all your gyms were dungeons, Okay, dungeons, and only dudes. It was maybe carpeting or concrete flooring, one mirror, no AC, one bathroom, one toilet, and that was it. That was your gym and a bunch of clunky weights. Vic Tanny comes in the 50s and opens up a gazillion. I think he had, I don't even know how many gyms he had, 500 to 700 gyms. Uh, actually, he, he grew up, he grew too fast and then imploded. But Vic is the first one with carpeting, chrome dumbbells, Mirrors, uh, his and her section eventually, uh, saunas, steam rooms, showers. So Vic Tanny was the one that made weight training, okay, more elegant or more consumer based, all right? In the 50s, he blew, he blew up in the 50s. In the 60s, all right, all of this becomes Venice Beach. By that time, now you had the beginnings of these bodybuilders. It wasn't Franco, Colombo, and, 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 uh, and Lou Ferrigno and Arnold just yet. It was more like the uh, Pearls and uh, the, those guys of, of, that, yeah, of that era. Okay, so Venice Beach. Now, 60s and 70s, Nautilus and Universal comes in. That's the beginning, all right? 60s and 70s, especially that 60s, 61 through 70. That is the beginning of the machine era. Uh, Cycloergometers, uh, treadmills, uh, Nautilus, Universal, those types of machines, all right? They really blew up. And then, of course, in 1965, Gold's Gym opens in Venice Beach, okay? Gold's Gym, okay, sells, and then they, they buy World Gym. And so that thing became, World's Gym was opened by uh, uh, Vince that opened up uh, actually uh, Gold's Gym. Then of course, 1977, you have Pumping Iron. And that originally, right from here to here, this, from 60s to 77, this is the era where it's coming, 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 and 77 with that movie, Pumping Iron, that's where the thing blows up. Arnold, charismatic guy, you have Franco Colombo, you have Lou Ferrigno, you have Dave Draper, all those guys in that movie, and it was very cool to see muscular 
people being cool, how they talk, how they play around with each other, how they play tricks on each other, uh, what they think about the competition, what they think about each other. And of course, Arnold made that movie and the editing was awesome and boom, bodybuilding becomes cool. In the late 70s, early 80s, everybody wanted to be big. Everybody wanted to be Arnold. Big arms, big shoulders, big chest, big everything. Now, okay, the last 15 years, actually since mixed martial arts started, MMA, all those fighters have become lean, weight classes, shredded. So now that shredded look is a more a palatable look, and people are going more for that. Notice you'll, you'll, you'll hear a lot, a personal trainer will hear a lot, I don't want to get big, I want to look toned, I want to look lean, I want to look shredded, I want to look athletic. When we, when we get people in here for body transformation, I don't know the last time that I heard somebody say, I want my arms to be 17 or 18 inches. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember the last time I saw a, an attorney say, you know, I, I, I want to do bodybuilding, I want to get big. I don't remember. Everybody, I want to drop weight, I want to look shredded. I want to drop weight, I want to look shredded, I want to look nice in clothing, and I want to look nice at the beach. So, of course, the 1980s, okay, big clubs. That's where you have your 70,000, 80,000 foot clubs. They started with racquetball clubs, okay? We would have 11, 12, 15 racquetball courts. They would have basketball, they would have his and hers, they would have saunas, restaurants. Clubs became clubs. Clubs became places to socialize. Not only would you lift in those clubs, but you would hang out at the restaurant, at the uh, uh, you know shake bar, and actually socialize. Actually, there were even fashions made to go work out. In the 80s, it was all about the fashion, the Zoom coverages and uh, all the, uh, the big pants and the tank tops. People were actually looking good at the gym. The girls were wearing makeup, they were wearing their headbands, they did their hair, and everybody would go to the club in the 80s to lift and socialize. It was awesome, okay? And a lot of the, the, the training uh, environments and the training methods come from, from these. You go, well, how can we still do that? Because it's got such a rich culture. It's got such a rich community that it's still there. So if you go any big club, you're going to see machines till the cows come home. What's most people doing now? A lot of them are doing movement training, you know, medicine balls, bands, stability balls, TRXs, and all this stuff. Okay? But if you go to any big club, you will see 80% of their equipment is still machines. Why? Because of this. This made the machines stick. And they're good. They're good. I have nothing uh, but, but uh, good things to say about machines. All right, the 1990s. That's when uh, I went back to school. Uh, let me see, I went back to school in 93, okay? I graduated in 77 from high school, uh, went to about 86 uh, in, in school, doing different, uh, uh, different um, majors and whatnot. Took time off, worked, you know. And it wasn't until 1991, I believe, 1991 that I came to Boca, all right, and went back to school. Went back to school, all right? In the 1990s, by the time I graduate, okay, I work a little bit, the Perform, um, uh, the Perform Better Tour is about to begin. I do a presentation called uh, the A through Zs of Multidisciplinary multi Training or uh, something like that at the NSCA, 900 people in that audience. In that audience is Chris Poirier from Perform Better. He calls me, he says, man, you and Steve Cannavale kicked it out of the park. How would you like to start the tour with us? Great, 
fantastic. And it was Vern Gambetta, uh, myself, and one other guy. Three guys that we, we went to Columbia University and did our first tour. It's there, right then and there, that the functional training revolution starts. <coughs> it's, uh, let me see, it's 97. 97 is when I get the call, we go. And it exploded, this 1990s functional training revolution. Medicine balls, stability balls, SAQ was hot already with Randy Smythe. So all of this new avant-garde training comes out. It doesn't hurt the body. It's a, it's a departure from the grind. It's a departure from the get big. It's a departure from all of the bad rep that weightlifting uh, had, had received. You know, not fair, but it had received it, that it made you slow, that it made you inflexible, all that stuff. So this functional training comes in, and there's no damage to the body. There's great movement. From a specificity standpoint, you can simulate a low volley. You can simulate a takedown. You can simulate a bat swing. You can simulate a throw. With functional training, you can simulate any movement. And as you simulate the movement, it becomes more specific. More specific, better transfer. Better transfer, faster improvement. So people are doing functional training here in the, in the 1990s and they're going, this is awesome. So for example, for the first time, we get them on a single leg and we start doing anterior reaches. Their jogging capacity goes through the roof. If they're running 5Ks, they drop 20 seconds in their 5K without running anymore. Their back pain goes away. The knee gets fixed. They're going, this is amazing. And this thing here in the 90s blows up. Blows up. Men's Journal, Men's Health, Women's Fitness, all of the magazines are going nuts calling me. Calling Gary Gray, calling Michael Clark, calling uh, Vern Gambetta, calling all the, all the guys that were on tour, hey, show us uh, a functional training routine. Show us something for the legs. Show us something to improve running. Show us something to get rid of back pain. And we were just like, bam, bam, bam. Oh, yeah, here. Have you ever heard of stability ball? No, I have. Oh, let me show you this. There's a stability ball that you can do 500 exercises with. I have a, two videos with 300 exercises. Really, the videos go nuts. You start selling all of this stuff. And that's what happens in the 1990s and even up to 2000 where the franchises and online training really, really blows up. Because social media really blows up. Oh, I would say 2003, 2005. Remember, we had MySpace. That was the kind of the first social media where you could put something and show pictures. MySpace. That didn't last long, and then came, boom, Facebook and everything else that, that's come since then. And, of course, now it's a social media space-driven marketing. But this is kind of your history. This is how you get here, and it's good to understand that so you know what happens. You know what happens and, and why it happened. All right? The history of certifications. Now, so now personal training is a thing, all right? And so ACSM 1982 has the health fitness instructor. 1982, ACE, first personal training certification in 86. NSCA 1980, the CSCS, Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist, in the 1990s, and I was part of this movement with Dr. Abbott, uh, Meg Stone, and all the other people that were on the board of directors and on the committee to create a personal training certification. The NSCA, to get the CSCS, you needed a four-year degree to sit in. They didn't care if you had a, a history degree, but it had to be, you had to be a college graduate to get sit in for the CSCS. The CPT, you didn't have to be. And so they kind of tailored this uh, to more personal training 
And let me tell you, there was huge kickback from the NSCA. They didn't want it because the NSCA was strength and conditioning coaches. They didn't want to be diluted by personal trainers. There was only one problem. Only one problem. Over here in the early 2000s, functional training is so hot and personal training is exploding to the point where you have a CSCS conference, a strength and conditioning conference, with 2,500 people. The only problem is that about 1,700 of those 2,500 people were personal trainers. And the NSCA and the industry really finds out very quick that personal trainers know they can make money on training. They're not coaches from high school or coaches from college where they have a salary and whether they're good or bad, they get the salary. Personal trainers realize that the more avant-garde they were, the more educated they were, the more entertaining they were, the more effective they were, the more they could charge, the more hours they would have. Boom. So the personal trainers were coming to these certifications in droves to those conferences, in droves, and spending money. And, you know, follow the money. Boom. Before you know it, the certified personal trainer certification is born because of finances. Okay? The NSCA and all other related sort of organizations were making a killing on personal trainers, all right, in the early 2000s. Right now, we're in 2022, and you're lucky. You're lucky if you get 500, 600 people in what you used to get 2,500 people. Okay? I just went to the NSCA uh, certificate, um, uh, conference last year in uh, Orlando. I did a pre-con. It was nothing for me to have 100 people in the pre-con. I think I had 18 people in the pre-con because of the COVID thing and all this stuff and, and social media and people uh, that now get uh, the, the, the uh, you can now get all the contents of the conference for 200, 250 bucks and not go. So you save the trip, you save the hotel, you save the food, you get to work and you learn. So most people are going, forget it, give it to me through, through online. That's changed the game. That has changed the game. You have to understand this because it's changed the personal training game as well. All right? NASM has the performance enhancement specialist in the 2000s. Michael Clark did that. All right? Awesome guy. So, and then the CPT, first functional training CPT, certified personal trainer certification, goes to the NASM. But it's super complicated. So everybody here that's kind of moving in the right direction, strength and conditioning, well, okay, all right, bring in the personal trainers, that's the NSCA. Michael Clark is a genius. He's a physical therapy a therapist. He's a doctorate. Got a, he's got, he got his doctorate like in a year. Insane brilliance from Michael Clark. But man, Michael Clark can't say his name simple. He's so intelligent. He, he, he knows so much that when he's throwing stuff at you, you're like paralyzed. And the certifications and the uh, text came across as that well, too. It's a great certification. It's a great organization. I love Michael Clark. I can't say enough good things about him and the NASM. But the truth of the matter is their first assessment was like 17 different exercises. What personal trainer is going to do that? But since personal trainers don't have their... They don't have their origin. They don't have their identity. They don't have their, their heroes. They don't have their leaders who led them somewhere. They're just kind of sitting in limbo. Okay, remember, we're only less than 40 years old. You can sell a personal trainer on anything. So when the NASM comes out with all the big physical therapy language, the personal trainers that wanted to be somebody or sound like somebody, boom, they gravitate right to the NASM. And they learn the big terminology. And before the NASM, Paul Checkett started that. 
Okay, very high level physical therapy thing being sold to personal trainers. And the personal trainers that wanted to sound intelligent, that wanted to be doctors, that wanted to be therapists, pick up on this. There's only one problem. When you practice that kind of physical therapy in the personal training space, you lose. You lose time, you lose clients, you lose money, you die. Okay, that's like somebody showing up at a fight with street fighting, no rules, and a lot of weaponry, and another person uh, is just going to box. Just going to box. Who do you think is going to win? Who do you think is going to win? The guy who's limited to two hand strikes, or the guy who's wide open, I can throw an ashtray at you, I can kick you, I can spit you, I can bite you, I can, I can put my fingers in your eyes. Who do you think is going to win? The guy that's got the practical usage effective thing. All right, and that physical therapy thing is not effective in this space. It's not, the knowledge is, the practice is not. And that's one of the things that happened. Now, since, the, since these big ones, ACSM, ACE, NSCA, NASM, you have the AFA, you have the ISSA, you have a ton of others. They all suffer from the same thing. They wanna to be too scientific and they don't have enough personal training, practical information, and that is why you're probably listening to me today. All right. Okay, let's talk about some of the personalities. Because when you, um, when you have doctors, they know who the first doctors were. Part of being a doctor is the history of medicine. They'll, they'll know, they'll know the first doctors from the Greek times and what they did and their practices and all that kind of stuff. They can tell you, they can tell you how lobotomies were performed right here with the eye with a pick and this and that. Barbaric shit, man. This is, this is what happened and they know the history because that's kind of, that, that, that's kind of gives you the path. It gives you an appreciation for where you're at today. Where did I come from? Wow, this is what they were doing 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 800 years ago? Wow, we've progressed. But this is where we come from. Knowing that history gives you a, a context that, that you, you don't have otherwise, okay? So let's talk about the, uh, the, the big personalities in functional training and in personal training. All right, the, the first rehab, Okay, the rehab thing, the big guy that you guys all know is Yonda, Vladimir Yonda. Now, Yonda uh, quoted a lot of the work that Basmajian did, John Bas and this was in the 60s. Okay, uh, Vladimir Yonda, I would say, would be the great grandfather or grandfather of personal training. That dude tied all dysfunctions to the iliosaurus. He was huge on the iliosaurus and the detrimental effects of sitting on everything, on the knee, on the ankle, on the spine, on the shoulder, on the elbow. So this guy tied everything from your short iliosaurus from sitting to most dysfunctions. He was the one responsible for the upper and lower cross syndromes. That's your boy. Okay, and most of the stuff that comes from therapy today has its origin in Vladimir Yanda. This is the big dude here. This is the guy that kind of revolutionized it. Before him, uh, Basmajian. I would say if, if uh, Yanda is the grandfather of modern functional training, I would say that the father of modern functional training is Gary Gray. That's my guru. That's the guy that really blew me up mentally when he would talk and and it would be the equivalent of being in a room and somebody opening up the door and saying, no, 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 wait a minute. You got a backyard here that's available to you that you didn't see because the door was closed. And all you needed, you didn't need somebody to tour you in the backyard. You just needed somebody to tell you that there was a door there that would open and there was some really cool stuff and just give you a peek. 
a sample, right? A peek. And you go, wow, then it's up to you. You don't, need, you don't need more than that. You open the door and you explore, right? That for me was Gary Gray. And I learned more about being a good human being from Gary Gray than learning about exercise. And boy, I learned a ton of exercise. But this dude is so solid as a human being, as a father, as a husband, as a community member, that that's what, that's what inspired me the most. And personal trainers have to understand that. In order for you to... In order for you to, to, to inspire people and to motivate people, they have to feel like that about you. They got to feel about you the way I feel about Gary Gray. Wow, this person is a stand-up individual. Perfect? No, but he's a stand-up individual. He tries. He's, he's conscientious and he's aware of his actions and his duty in this life and what he wants to leave behind. And everything, his attempt is always noble. We all are, you know, flawed and we all have our, our issues and we all make mistakes. But the intent is never to hurt anybody. The intent is always to be productive and to move forward in a noble fashion. And that's what I love about Gary Gray. Of course, the Perform Better Tour, that's the tour that blew up per, uh, functional training. And you gotta give Chris Poirier, my boy, Chris Poirier, that actually, Chris launched my career with this tour that I, that I anchored for about 10 years. Okay, Chris Poirier is my man. He is the head of Perform Better, and him and Perform Better put functional training on the map and educated the entire industry on functional training for now going on 20 years. 20 years, okay? Uh, no, actually we started, well, they've been having the company for more than 20 years, but the tour started in 97, so 97 to 2022, that's three, 15 years. For 15 years they educated the entire industry, all right? And of course, the present moment uh, is somewhat diluted. Why? Because of social media. Now, everybody's an expert. If you have your qualifications are a six pack and, and, and good looks. Because now if you are um, uh, good looking, you have a six pack and you, you can start saying some dumb ass shit like cardio doesn't matter if you want to drop weight. If you want to drop weight, what do you think? You got to get do cardio. You got to you got to not eat pizza. That's not it. You know, you know, the catch lines. You have them idiots. All right. That, that tell you that cardio is ineffective and that you, you can eat pizza and do all the things that you want and everything is cool. No, it's not that. It's not that. But now that's what you have. So it's more important now to be able to decipher what's BS in, uh, on social media and what's good. And that is one of the reasons that you have to select very carefully who you learn from. You just can't fall in love with an exercise, a presentation, a look. You gotta say, okay, what is this person's background? What is their resume? Who have they trained? And I don't wanna hear about testimonials. Those the testimonials are all paid. Sometimes it's a testimonial for this and they use it here. All the pictures are bullshit. I mean, it, and, and on and on and on, okay? So, you have to, if I'm gonna learn from somebody, I wanna learn like from Gary Gray, why? Because Gary Gray has the education. Gary Gray has a practice. So if you go to Adrian, Michigan, he's in his clinic practicing, getting people better, okay? He's got materials, he's written books, he's got a tour. I can go see him, I went to see him like four times in San Diego. So I can hear this guy, I can see this guy, and he's got published materials that have stood the test of time. And he's always pushing the envelope. Now, 
that he's proven himself like that in the space, I want to learn from somebody like that. Not from somebody on Instagram that claims to have serviced 3,000 people and co collectively they've, they've dropped 45 tons of fat and yeah, 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 I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I know it's very popular now and people gravitate to that, but I'm not, I'm not doing that and I urge you guys to be very careful as to who you learn from.